of the eldest son, the rebel, was now complete. The family's political fortunes, expected to be carried by Jeb, were instead now on his older brother's shoulders. As in all things, it's always good to be the winner, said Cousin John Ellis. So they saddled up with old George W. Tears welled up in the eyes of both George Bushes. On his wrists, the new president wore the cufflinks that his grandfather had worn in the Senate and that his father had worn in the White House. It is remarkable to think that had the electoral fortunes been in Jeb's favor in 1994, a Bush might still have been sworn in as president, only the first name would be different. When the Bushes gathered in Kennebunkport, Maine, a few months later, the elder George Bush relinquished his seat at the head of the family table. That spot would now go to his eldest son. During the next several years, some of the most eventful in American history, W. would consult with his father regularly. Sometimes they would agree. At other times, over issues such as the war in Iraq, they would express differences. And as President George W. Bush conducted the affairs of the country, he would find himself at times dealing with foreign heads of state or international players in the Middle East and Asia who had business dealings with his family. For more than a century, the Bushes have been at or near the center of American public life as friends of presidents, captains of industry, capitalists, senators, congressmen, ambassadors, governors, federal judges, and two American presidents. While the Bushes lack the flamboyance of the Roosevelts or the enormous wealth of the Kennedys, they have surpassed those two great dynasties. There can be little question that the Bushes are now the most successful political family in American history. Yet precious little has been written about the Bushes, in contrast to the hundreds of books about the Roosevelts and Kennedys. Biographies have been written about both former President Bush and President George W. Bush, but details about the larger family are scant. To the extent that the family has been studied at all, it has emerged as a caricature. New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd has compared the Bushes with a sinister mafia clan, while at the same time declaring that they are a boring group of cutouts from a Brooks Brothers catalog. Michael Kinsley claims that he can find nothing serious about them. They are motivated, he claims, by a preppy ethic that one should be serious about games and casual about life. Journalist Evan Thomas of Newsweek is equally unimpressed. The Kennedys flew too close to the sun. The Bushes just asked for more pork rinds. Why the caricature? Mystery often invites these kinds of labels. Unlike the Kennedys, and even to some extent the Roosevelts, the Bushes have been famously disinterested over the years in speaking to the media about their family and the dynamics within the greater Bush clan. Time magazine has accurately dubbed them the Quiet Dynasty, because they have quietly gone about their business, flying below much of the media radar. Inside the family, there is an unwritten code about dealing with the media, a code that is firmly enforced. There is an inner circle in the family, Bush cousin John Ellis explained. If you haven't said anything bad to the press, you're in pretty good shape. But if you said anything bad, Barbara Bush kind of puts you in the deep freeze for a while, and then you have to work your way out. I think you could burn down the house in Kennebunkport, and you'd be in less trouble than if you gave a bad quote to the New York Times. The family's distrust and at times disdain for the media has deep roots, running back some fifty years to when Prescott Bush was making his first bid for the U.S. Senate. That distrust runs particularly strong when it comes to writing about family matters. The public glare can be distorted. It can be mean, Jeb Bush said. 
You have the political press writing about non-political issues. Most of these people are not the most brilliant people in the world, and when you get them out of their area, writing about the family, it can be a little bit scary. Even on the few occasions when these family walls were penetrated by journalists, they often came up dry. The simple fact is, members of the Bush family don't like to talk about themselves. The Bushes consider self-focus and self-analysis to be dangerously close to self-centeredness. In an era of media saturation and confessional politics, the Bushes have little interest in playing the game. Too much self-reflection, Jeb Bush says, is self-absorption, and it's part of our problem in this country. There needs to be a limit to constantly reflecting on yourself. You should keep your head up, help others, and be well-versed in the world around you. My dad is not going to write a memoir. It would make him feel really uncomfortable. That is an odd thing in America today. Bill Clinton just signed up for $10 million for the book rights, and he'll love writing about himself. His editors will probably say, you'll have to cut it in half. The Bushes also have a disinterest in publicity because they consider themselves to be the un-Kennedys. When they talk about themselves, both in public and private, they often use the Kennedys for comparative purposes. Senator Prescott Bush maintained a cordial relationship with JFK during his political career, but he was quietly dismayed about their focus on publicity. He thought that old Joe Kennedy was unseemly in the way he courted the media, says Nancy Ellis, the sort of imagery around Camelot, he just thought it was ridiculous. So, while the Kennedys often tried to waspify themselves and play the aristocrats, the Bushes migrated in the opposite direction. While the socially ambitious Kennedys were giving white-glove teas, the aristocratic Bushes were barbecuing in Texas. Prescott Bush was also proud of the fact that the Bush boys, unlike the Kennedys, were expected to go out and earn a living in the marketplace. Work was the great democratizer an experience unfamiliar to the Kennedys. But the Bushes also differ from other prominent families in their intense sense of loyalty. Their keen sense of self-identity runs deeper than in just about any other American dynasty. The Kennedys, for example, cultivated close relationships with a host of advisors and friends and made them, as Gary Wills has put it, honorary Kennedys. The Bushes have no such appendages. Marlon Fitzwater, who served as White House spokesman for President George H.W. Bush and remains a close family friend, noticed pretty quickly that even the closest of friends and advisors could not penetrate the family's inner circle. The Bushes will never have their Ted Sorensen, he told us. They are just too close-knit for that. Bush cousin John Ellis saw this unique difference between the Bushes and a dynasty like the Kennedys close up as a young man. His summers were spent with the extended family, and he keeps contact to this day. He also happened to forge a close relationship with Joe Kennedy, Jr., when the two roomed together at Milton Academy. One Thanksgiving, the two boys headed to the Ellis home in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Sandy Ellis, John's father, came and greeted young Joe. "'What are you doing for Thanksgiving?' "'I'm going back home,' young Joe told him. "'That'll be great. Well, I'll have to leave early from here to get home. Why do you need to leave early?' To get a bed. Excuse me, what? asked the elder Ellis, raising his eyebrows. Yeah, when we have Thanksgiving at home, Joe explained, we have all these people come, Arthur Schlesinger, all these people, and if I don't get there in time to claim my room, Mother just gives it away. Ellis concluded with a serious tone, and that would never happen in a million years in our family. For the Bushes, 
blood runs thicker than politics or patronage. John Adams called it family spirit, a desire to promote the essence of our families. For the Bushes, it is an idea deeply ingrained from their earliest youth. Long-time family friends note that they possess a strong tribal sense, a dynastic instinct, that drives them. They are a clan, pure and simple, says Fitzgerald Bemis, a family friend of more than sixty years who has known four generations of Bushes. They think like a clan and act like a clan. Loyalty is very important, and so is their sense of heritage. Everyone is independent, but also part of the whole. Children are brought up with stories about past generations and taught to respect their elders and their contributions to both family and country. When Prescott Bush served in the United States Senate, he insisted that his grandsons call him not Grandpa, but Senator. They were also strongly encouraged to come to the Senate gallery to watch the action, to listen, and to learn. The family makes a conscious effort to pass along its heritage. Just as the young John Quincy Adams would listen in on his father's conversations with Thomas Jefferson, the Bushes make a conscious effort to train future generations as history is being made. When George H. W. Bush was president, he saw to it that not only his children but also his grandchildren became familiar with the White House and saw the pageantry of the presidency. Bush kids are also encouraged to experience the same rites of passage that their ancestors did. When George H. W. Bush was a young man on vacation in Kennebunkport, he would be awakened in the early morning and encouraged to jump off the dock and swim in the cold waters off Walker Point. Several generations of Bush toddlers have skinny-dipped in the Booney Wild Pool, a small pool of water collected in the rugged rocks by the Atlantic. Even today, these practices are encouraged among the Bush children, although today's generation is...